me. One day, very soon, the majority of people will start returning to the past of their own accord. They'll start losing their memories willingly. The time is coming when more and more people will want to hide in the cave of the past to turn back. And not for happy reasons, by the way. We need to be ready with the bomb shelter of the past. Call it the time shelter, if you will. Welcome to the Book of Price podcast with me, Joe Hamia. And me, James Walton. And this week we have an end of the year treat for you, an interview with 2023 International Booker Prize winners, Georgi Gospodinov and Angela Rodell, the author and translator respectively of the novel Time Shelter. Which you just heard actor Toby Stevens reading from in the intro. But Joe, before we get to the interview, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. How's the party season going? Have you been living a, a riotous old time with your literary pals? No, I wish. I have been invited to one party that hasn't happened yet, but um, I haven't even managed to... Um, get my decorations up like I've bought them but they're just lying in a box under my desk but I have already I did in the very final week of November uh serendipitously hear Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You so that's how I know that the Christmas season has begun but we should move on to our interview with uh Georgi and Angela uh okay but before we get to the interview um Joe why don't you tell us what Time Shelter is all about yeah it's centered around this conceit of an Alzheimer's clinic, uh, which essentially offers to restore memory by taking uh, patients back to the uh, point in life at which they were youngest, healthiest, um, and more likely to recover all their faculties. Yeah, so so for example, they've got a, a floor for the, for the 60s, a uh, floor for the 50s, yeah. and rather, you know, melancholy <laughs> a way they've got to get ready for the 80s and 90s for when people like that are coming through. Yeah. So at, at that point... It's the, all the, quite nice. Yes, it's yeah. all quite nice. And then and then it becomes not so nice because... Because, because I suppose, um, various countries catch hold of this concept and politicise it to, to no end. So um, they begin uh, sort of appropriating these memory rooms as a way to go back to... Uh, the the best decade of their era and it all culminates in this uh it it reads i don't want to say this is a bad thing it's farcical but not in a bad way um series of referendums in europe on which decade the country should go back to uh, yeah, to that's live right. in and it, and it goes through one by one tragically britain's not allowed to uh, <laughs> not allowed to join in because we're, we're not in the eu anymore shameful uh, um but it but it is really kind of fascinating this this sense of um i guess suspense uh, that the narrator goes through over and, and speculation over uh, which decade each country will choose. In the end, a lot of countries do seem to plump for the 80s, don't they? Yeah, and particularly in East, well, Eastern Europe, it's kind of very late 80s, yeah. be, be after communism, but before the disappointment sets in. But but no, it is true for, for a lot of the countries, it's it's the 80s. And um, and I think this allows the book to, to make the point of the kind of dangers of nostalgia, the weaponization of nostalgia. Yeah. I think um, you know, on the, personally, going back to, to the past is perfectly pleasurable and and, and lovely, uh, if if sort of bittersweet and a bit pangy. Yeah. Uh, but for an entire country to do it, that's sort of where the trouble begins. We've obviously seen that in all sorts of countries around the world <laughs> in the last few years. Um, and there's um, obviously there's a focus on Bulgaria. So at one point, the narrator goes back when the two factions in the referendum are deciding which they want. So there's one called the SOC. Sock movement. Sock movement, I think, yeah, which is yeah. the socialists who want to go back to 
communism, not at its most terrible, I think probably 70s, 80s, not the bit where all the intellectuals were being slaughtered after the war. Uh, but And they reproduce it sort of exactly even down to the cracked nature of the sort of loud hailers and yeah. uh, how slightly um, inefficient it is. Uh, uh, meanwhile, there's also slightly breaking the referendum uh, conditions, isn't it? Because it's meant to be the 20th century. But the bit where Bulgaria became independent of the Ottoman Empire in the 1880s, mm. and so there's those people... So people start wearing, you know, national clothes and stuff on buses and everything. Yeah. But the narrator finds when he goes back, there's these two, two factions fighting against each other. Yeah, it is slightly terrifying. I mean, I think there's a there's a point uh, in the book in Sarajevo where there's a reenactment of um, Franz Ferdinand going around in a motor car, and there's this uh, narration that's like, well, obviously he's not going to get shot. It's fine. You know, we all we all know what happened after that, so no one's going to be stupid enough. And then guess what? Yeah. So it really is, I think, when we come on to the interview with Georgi, he makes the point that personal memory can't be altered or, or relived or undone, but historical memory and events definitely can. And I think the novel is really good towards the end on, on picking up on yeah. that point. I think we've surprised that pretty well, Joe, if we may yeah. pat ourselves on the back, but uh, I wouldn't want people listening to... Not realize it explores memory from almost every possible angle, yes. doesn't it? The good things, the bad things, whether it's best to remember. Um, and there's some just stories that are great in themselves. As one guy has completely forgotten what happened to him, uh, and they bring in basically the secret policeman who used to follow him around in Bulgaria, <laughs> who tells him exactly what he did during those years. The other thing I actually really enjoyed about it is I think if you um, just went through it and ticked off all the cultural references in it, all the music, all the film, all the historical landmarks you would end up with this really amazing catalogue of just um i don't know i don't know how you put it like european cultural artifacts just like no, a really no, great guidebook to, to you could make a syllabus out of it out of time shelter yeah. and kind of study no i know obviously I'm, 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 I'm very pleased about the complete centrality of the beatles to the entire <laughs> history of europe in the 20th century uh, i've done only by the second world war which still remains i think they're the thing to which everything leads and from which everything leads. Yeah. And that's Time Shelter. So with all that being said, let's move on to the interview. So welcome, Gorgio and Angela. Uh, delighted to have you with us. You're joining us from uh, from Sofia? Yes, we're in Sofia, Bulgaria. Uh, Time Shelter was the first novel uh, translated from the Bulgarian to win the International Booker. In fact, the first to be shortlisted. Um, Kogi, well, you've won a lot of prizes, but did this one feel different in any way? Um, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. First, first of all, uh, it was a big, pure joy here in Bulgaria, but not, not only in Bulgaria, also in the Balkan countries. Uh, I was a week ago in Zagreb and, uh, they told me here in Zagreb, uh, we felt like a Croatian writer uh, won the Booker Prize. So this is very important for all the countries or the writers from our part of the world, uh, because sometimes I think we have this feeling that, uh, you know, our stories are not, not very often uh, in front of the European, Western European, the world reader on the stage. And uh, that's why this award was important. Also, you know, it happened just before the 24th of May. It's our national holiday, which was very, it's a holiday dedicated to alphabet. We adopted Slavic Cyrillic uh, 
alphabet. And this was very important sign. And uh, yeah, the society was united uh, because of the joy of this of this award. So how did it work? Was it sort of live streamed to Bulgaria? Yeah, yeah. A lot of friends and supporters were watching and uh, apparently yeah. there was a lot of screaming and yelling here in Sofia when the, when the announcement was made because really it was the evening of May 23rd, which but Bulgaria's two hours ahead. So they announced right around 10 o'clock, which is right around the stroke of midnight here on the on the eve of the Bulgarian alphabet day. So it was really, really a, a special moment for, for everyone here. But I heard the the two of you uh, afterwards wanted to celebrate. You were in Kensington after the ceremony, and um, unfortunately, not much partying in Kensington. No, no, we too bad we weren't here in Sofia. We we ended up going to a convenience store and getting a bottle of prosecco oh. and sitting in the hotel with Georgi's wife and daughter, and uh, it kind of brought us all back to our student years. <laughs> oh my god. That's so lovely in its way as well, though. It sounds really intimate. But I'd also love to know, Angela, um, I, it's also a, a huge win for a translator. How has it you know, changed your life? Is there a translation community? Um, and you know, do you speculate about the international booker the way that writers do? I, I think that maybe <laughs> translators were were used to being invisible, so I don't I didn't even dare think about you know the Booker International. I've I've known you know other translators who who've won it, um, but that that always just seems like a dream, something that's impossible. And 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 it's interesting because there is a community of translators, um, but because I don't live in the U.S., I don't see my colleagues in the U.S. Of course, online we communicate um, with Alta and some other groups, but um, here in Bulgaria we have a we have a community of translators. Um, all of us translating into different languages. So last night we were just at a party and I ran into uh, Georgi's uh, Danish translator, his uh, Dutch translator. So actually um, there, there are different translation communities, but I think most of us are, are probably too humble to dare to dream about something like the Booker. So it was just an absolute dream come true. And how did you, how did you two meet actually? Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, actually, my ex-husband is also a writer, and he's a poet, and Georgi was the editor of his first uh, poetic book, uh, and um, it was funny, I remember Georgi was already a legend when I was, when I was here in Bulgaria, um, and a bunch of young writers were doing this kind of um, interesting thing called lit tournée where we'd stand out in the middle of like public parks with like an old amplifier and like read poetry at people walking by <laughs> whether or not they wanted it and I remember one day we were just like oh, he's gonna come Georgi, he's gonna come and he showed up and I think that was the first time I ever actually met Georgi in, in person was probably 20 years ago at this um outdoor sort of uh flash poetry reading I, I actually something that I found really uh, fascinating is the fact that you're both musically inclined. Georgi, you write operas, and Angela, you're in a folk band. Do you do you ever overlap in that sense? Yeah. Um, no, I think Georgi. One of the things I really like about his writing is that there's music plays such a, a role. As as we saw in Time Shelter, you can make a couple albums out of just all the music that's referenced in the book. And for me, I came to Bulgaria because I wanted to study Bulgarian folk music. So of course, for me, I think it's not coincidence people that that love poetry, that love language. There is a sonic element to it. There's a rhythm, there's a prosody. And I think maybe both of us, um, our musical inclinations come out, you know, in, on the page in that respect. I don't know, Georgi? Yes, um, actually, uh... 
you know, they they asked me from uh, Booker committee uh, committee to make uh, something like playlist of the novel, and uh, I made this playlist with twelve very important songs and piece of songs. Music is very important because it's connected with the Alzheimer and dementia, and the novel is about this. You know, the musical structures they they unlocked memory in a way and also they stay to the last moments in our memory the last thing that will disappear uh, this is uh, some piece of piece of music so that's why it, it it was very important for it for the novel but also when i write i i like to to start with uh, with the music uh, and you you can find many of, of course many Beatles songs, but also Sarabanda uh, by Handel, uh, but also this very old song by Kurt, Kurt Weil and Bertolt Brecht, Alabama song that we know because of Doors later. So all of these pieces are very important for the novel. Uh, can we just ask a bit about how the actual collaboration between you works? Gogia, do, do you write the book and then give it to Angela? She presents you with the English translation or is it more collaborative all along the, the way than that? Yes, uh, uh, with Angela, uh, this is the second novel that we worked together with Angela. The previous one uh, was The Physics of Sorrow. And uh, now, uh, because we are living in the same city, in Sofia, so it's uh, very easy to communicate, to to have coffee, to talk about the, these translations, issues. And I really like when when I have talk with translators, I'm always suspicious to the translators that never ask you. I, I would love to know, Angela, exactly how translating from a Slavic language to an English language. Yeah, no, Bulgarian is maybe odd in terms of Slavic languages and it doesn't have cases. So everyone mm -hmm. who suffered with Russian and Polish and all the other languages with <laughs> lots of cases. And in one sense, that's, you know, there's it's a little easier, quote unquote, in Bulgarian. But the verbal system is, is by far the hardest. I think I teach translation and that's one of the things I find my students struggling with. Yeah, but it, it just uh, you know, just the sounding is very different. Like, you know, Slavic languages have lots of consonants. A lot of uh, Bulgarian is, is unusual in that it has a, like a postpositional article, like the comes at the end of the, the word and it's like ta, to, toy. And so you get this kind of like, almost like a machine gun kind of rat-a-tata type sound <laughs> in Bulgarian, which is really like difficult to, uh, to to emulate. And in his previous book, Physics of Sorrow, he played with that. And it was it was very <laughs> difficult to uh, figure out how to bring a little bit of that duh, 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 into the into the English sounding. Yeah. And do, do you ever think when he does something like that, oh, for God's sake, you know, make, make my life a bit easier? <laughs> Yes, yeah, I think so. Uh, we, uh, we 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 lovingly complain. All of Georgi's translators, we all know each other, many of us, and yeah. uh, we say, "Oh, what did you do about that? Oh, that was really kind of nasty on his part, wasn't it?" So, yeah. so complaining is not something typical only for Bulgarians, but also for the translators. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, could you just lower the tone slightly, Andrew? With just one question that struck me, which is there's one bit in the book where talking about what time takes off people. And it, uh, this robber, life or time, comes and takes everything. Your memory, your heart, your hearing, your pecker. Now, presumably there's quite a lot of words for penis in Bulgarian. There's certainly a lot of words for penis in uh, English um, with different degrees of sort of comedy and rudeness. And uh, do you have to sort of match that, that sort of thing up? 
It's so funny. You'd ask a friend of mine about two weeks ago, just asked me the exact same question, like why pecker? <laughs> and, and the word in Bulgarian, like in Bulgarian also has a range of possible uh, words. I, I, I imagine. This, this uh, noun and it needed something that was kind of funny, light. It's not particularly vulgar my bishpatka na bogusti uh like so it, and also it had the put with the sounding worked as well so you know i didn't want something that was very vulgar or too medical and i thought that was sort of like a little bit lighthearted you know it also had the right sounding and in the the phrase has this series of things that you lose that has a rhythm and so i think um th there were a number of of uh of considerations that went into um choosing pecker you're obviously quite proud of Pecker in the end. And just actually one, one other, one other just, just question. The, the, for the fact that the, we'll get onto the novel more, much more closely in, in a minute, but uh, there's a memory clinic that's surrounded by flowers that are forget-me-nots, which is obviously a lovely sort of touch. Is that the same phrase in Bulgarian then? Yes, luckily. I, I don't know what my colleagues who are in languages where it's named something different, but I, I lucked out completely the Nizabravka, right? It's the yeah. same. It's basically don't forget in Bulgarian. So I, I, I lucked out. Well, maybe we can shift over more to uh, over to the idea of uh, Bulgarian literature generally, because there was a great sort of inaugural sense, Georgi, when you won the prize. Uh, do you feel like Bulgarian literature up to this point has been given its due or have we all been missing something? I hope it will come. I hope that this award, and I think it always it's already happened, uh, will open slightly the door to Bulgarian literature and not only to the contemporary literature, but of course on it as well, but also to the uh, literature from 20th century that we missed uh, in a time. So now uh, more publishers asked me and Angela about new voices, about Bulgarian writers. And uh, uh, now we expect two books to be published soon uh, from Bulgarian writers from the mid 20th century. So I think, yes, it works. And not only for Bulgarian literature, as I mentioned, but also for the literature in the region from the Eastern mm -hmm. so-called Eastern European literature or Central European literature, because uh, yeah, I think we have strong voices. Actually, we are very close to the uh, to Ukraine, to the places where war is happened now. And uh, this is important. And also we have, we have this experience. We had this experience. We used to live in the times that were uh, part of the Soviet Union domination. Yeah. And so we have some stories to tell. To tell. <laughs> which, which which 20th century novels would you recommend? Well, <laughs> which would you like <laughs> to you see translated? I have a new translation coming out in January of 2024. It's by Vera Mutovchieva. It's called The Case of Gem. And she was uh, a Bulgarian writer who was also an Ottoman historian, which is really interesting because Bulgarians have kind of a fraught relationship to the Ottoman past here. They're part of the Ottoman Empire for 500 years, but... Um, have sort of a, a difficult sort of relationship with that part of history. And so she, as a Bulgarian writing about sort of internecine war in the Ottoman royal house, it's a really interesting book. And it's actually kind of like a, a it's an analogy of the Cold War. It's very, um, I'd say has a lot to say about what's going on in Ukraine now. It's a really interesting book considering it was published in the 1960s. It has very, very contemporary messages. And also uh, we have this Georgi Markov, 
uh, who was emigrant, uh, dissident writer, uh, actually who was connected with London. Well, he was killed in London, in fact. Yeah, the Bulgarian umbrella, yeah. yeah. And uh, so we will have soon his uh, novellas in English. Uh, also, we met her widow in uh, London, and she was very, very, what to say, it was very movement meeting between us because she, she told me Georgi would be very happy if he was alive and to see what happened. Just on the, on the Bulgarian thing, I remember... Well, in the 80s, um, Eastern European writers did become quite sort of hot in, in the West, but it was ma mainly Czechs and led by Milan Kundra, but others too. Uh, and then Philip Roth brought out this Writers from the Other Europe series, 17 books, featured mainly Czechs and Poles with a couple of Hungarians and one Yugoslav. But, but no Bulgarians. Did you feel left out, basically, I suppose? <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, thank you for this question. I didn't know this, Kate, but I, I could... Yeah, I could imagine some explanations. Uh, you see, uh, he managed to find books by Czech, Poland, Hungarian mainly, and this is the these were the countries that were politically active in this period. They had this Czechs, uh, of course, Prague's uh, events or Hungarian events. You know, in Bulgaria, we had a strong tradition of short stories, storytelling, and poetry, and maybe people. Uh, were looking for a novels, more or less. So there are many, many reasons, but this is very interesting to think about why Bulgarian literature in this period didn't happen. Yeah, no, I think it's true. It's interesting. Bulgaria, I think up until World War II was like 80% rural. So it didn't really have the deep roots of like an urban intelligentsia where somewhere like Prague or, you know, Hungary would have. And then after 1944, the Red Army, they basically was a, was a purge of all the intellectuals that were killed or they fled. And so Bulgaria didn't have the same kind of dissident literature. I mean, there were some, of course, dissident writers, but it wasn't a strong movement just because they didn't have this base of urban intellectuals or the ones that had lived there had fled. And so it was funny. I remember being at a reading in uh, maybe 20 years ago, somebody had come from, I think it was, you know, somewhere else, and they had said something about Bulgaria's dissident literature, and it was dead silence in the room, and somebody yelled out, this isn't Prague. There just, there are social and historical reasons that these same sorts of movements were, were a little bit later coming coming to Bulgaria. Wow. Uh, when, when he meets um, a fellow Bulgarian early, early in the book, uh, in Time Shelter, there's a funny but... Uh, Slightly sad passage where the narrator, you referred to this before, I think, uh, says they talked about the eternal sorrow and misfortune of being Bulgarian, a topic ripe for filling any awkward lull in the conversation. For a Bulgarian, complaining is like talking about the weather in England. You can never go wrong. Um, <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> presumably that's true, is it? Yeah. Uh, actually, never ask Bulgarian uh, the question, how are you? It's not just an innocent Greek. <laughs> you will receive the full-scale answer about what's wrong with you, what, what's happened, and so on. But this is uh, this is the topic of my previous novel, The Physics of Sorrow. Uh, seriously speaking, uh, we have this culture of suffering, or culture of sorrow, let's say. And this is a serious question. Of course, we have historical reasons. We have this feeling that, that we are always out of the places where things happened, happens. 
so many, many, many things uh, are connected with this complaining. And actually, once we were champions of sorrow, we were the saddest place in the world, as we were called by uh, economists, I think. Uh, so I didn't realize it was official. <laughs> it's official. Yeah, you know, we never been champions of some collective game. <laughs> we were even pretty happy that we are champions in something, <laughs> even if it's sorrow. So that and the international booker. The, yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll hear more from Georgi Gospodinov and Angela Rodal after this short break. Welcome back to our interview with Georgi Gospodinov and Angela Rodel. For people in the West, obviously the past is, is, is vanished. But if you grow up under communism, it's, it, it, it's even more vanished in a way, isn't it? Because there's an entire system, a whole philosoph- philosophical underpinning of the way everything was, a whole way of living that's just gone. Um, does that make the past particularly strange and remembering it particularly hard, do you think? Yeah. It, it's a very interesting question because, you know, uh, I... I've worked in the last dec- decade or the previous decade with this memory about communism. We made the inventory book of communism, inventory book of socialism, and uh, we gathered small everyday things. And I also thought that the past is vanished, this kind of, this part of the past. But when you are when you cross the small villages or the small towns in Bulgaria, especially, you will see how actually part of this past is still there. Part of this furniture is still there. Part of these objects are there. And it's because of poverty. Poverty, of course. Poverty keeps the past alive, in a way. And uh, so uh, sometimes it's very strange that we had a strong nostalgia to this kind of the past. And in my novel, I wanted to to narrate about this kind of nostalgia to the socialist times, because populists now and politicians, they use this nostalgia, of course. They, they promise again this past, like a future. When I was young, they promised us, uh, usually they promised us future. They paid us with this check of the futures. Now they promise us the past, but we know it. We know it, yeah, in a good way. So uh, this is one strange thing. Another is that uh, if you travel in Sofia, if you take a cab, a taxi, uh, and, and you want to to stop in the downtown, in the center, you should, if you say, um, took me to the mausoleum, Mausoleum of Georgi Dimitrov was destroyed maybe 20 years ago, even more. Mm. Uh, It doesn't exist. It was mausoleum with a mummified body of Georgi Dimitrov, now a communist leader then. But the people still remember this place, and they know this place. You can feel the shadow of this place there. So it's very interesting with the times. They are not really passed into the past, Angela, that must be a, a thing in America too. Uh, too, you know, I mean, part of the book is um, about 
the urge to the, the essentially the, the the current politics has this nostalgic urge and uh famously in uh, in, in America we make America great again yep. but when when was when was it great the first time you know that's very much a question of sort of choosing your your decade isn't it as in as in the book people are asked yeah, and Every I think it depends very much on, on who you ask, but certain racial groups, certain, you know, women, uh, many people will answer that question very differently depending on what, you know, what their identity is. So, yeah, I think this is, I think it's, those are questions that every society asks itself. And that's what I think is so genius about Yori's book is that he, in a, in, in a sort of a, um, ironic and, and maybe a bit farcical way goes through a number of different countries and how do they pick and when do they pick but it really kind of makes you think and I thought about it I'm like what would America I kind of you know a fear to, to ask what Americans would pick which decade you know <laughs> so, what would be what would be your, like, your best guess actually I mean, if you had to do what Gorky did to America with America what would what, what do you think the refer so there's as I say there's these referenda where people choose their which decade they want their country to return to. Uh, what, would, what would America go for, do you think? I think a lot of Americans, depending on the generation, would probably go for like the 1950s because that was sort of after the war and then this big economic boom is when America kind of became the, the world's superpower. Um, but the fact of the matter is it was before civil rights. I mean, there are many reasons not to pick it, but I think a lot of Americans have a sense of nostalgia for that time things weren't quote-unquote as complicated you know the sexual revolution hadn't happened yet but I I personally wouldn't want to see America go back there but you know I can see that many of my country people might feel differently in Bulgaria uh, in the novel we have two two periods one of the this nationalistic periods of the uh, what to say Bulgarian revival movement from 19th century uh, and another one is the this late communism, this nostalgia to the late communism, the nostalgia of these times. That there, it's not the, maybe not anymore the nostalgia. I hope to the communist ideology, but this is a kind of conservative. It became a conservative nostalgia to the to this previous decade. Mm. But in the in the book, there's a point where you write the the narrator says there were two Bulgarias and neither of them was mine. So is this how you feel? Uh, look, look, I think I think I hope that there is a third one actually. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is mine. <laughs> the third one, yeah. Uh, uh, because if the two Bulgarians are one nationalistic Bulgarian with the Kitschev nationalism, the other one is uh, with nostalgia to socialism to the old times. I think that there is uh, a smaller one uh, with uh, young pro-European people, democratic people, people who really feel like a part of the world. And uh, I believe in this this kind of Bulgaria. Uh, now, the book, the, the, the book is a kind of thorough debate about the pros and cons of remembering, you know, the, the, what's good about remembering, remembering and what's dangerous about remembering. And going back to the past, um, did you eventually, again, quite a big question this, but did you eventually come down on one side or the other, whether it's better to, on the whole, remember or to forget? It's this, this is the main question of the book, of course, because the uh, working with the memory, everyday working with the memory is important, I think. Everyday work, this is important phrase, uh, because um, what happened now, you know, we are 70 years later from the Second World War, and we have another war. So, 
for 70 years, for seven decades after Second World War, because of, I think, of our stories, of our thinking and all the reflections on the war, we managed to have seven decades peace. So that's the work of the memory. Uh, memory keep the past into the past. I think that now we are living in a special period in a kind of social uh, amnesia, dementia, and Alzheimer, collective Alzheimer, we started to lose our memory for the past. And that's why the past comes easily now. Because the memory, it's important to have strong memory because to keep the past into the past. And so that's why it's important. But but the question is what kind of memory you, you should develop. I think it must be, uh, what to say, liberated memory. Could I say this? Yeah. Because, because they, they are also some dealers of the past, dealers of the memory for the past, like populists. And they tell us kind of dimensional, uh, invented, sanitized, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fake memory for the past. So this is also important. What kind of memory? Be careful what kind of memory they, they sell you. Yes, so in a way, nostalgia is almost the opposite of proper memory. In a way, is that what, is that what you're saying? The nostalgia is a normal human feeling. We should we should admit this. When you when you uh, when you like to live in your own past, it's a personal feeling, personal thing. And then it could be a bit innocent when you have a nostalgia to I don't know to the days when you were young or student or something like this. But nostalgia became dangerous, became become a weapon when someone tried to sell you collective past, when you tried to put you in a collective nostalgia to the some epoch or part of the history. And this is this could be this could be dangerous in a way. Because nostalgia is like a, hmm, like glasses that are not on the right size you put them and you see you see the world uh, in a different way not in the real one obviously part of the book is about um growing up sort of seeing seeing the west as a sort of mysterious other thing but very beguiling very attractive in some way I mean, yeah i mean again this is a big question what what did the west mean to people growing up in eastern europe and was that romanticized too as it turned out Actually, uh, we knew that uh, we were far away, that the other world was existed, is existed. We knew this, and we knew that we are not there, that this world is denied to us. And it was very traumatic knowledge, actually. Uh, so, West, Western world was some place that we never, we knew that we never will be there. We will not be part of this. So we didn't believe, we stopped to believe that we will be there. But we invented, invented this place. We dreamed about this place. We had our dreams about him. And my father and mother, they never traveled uh, abroad. I mean, in Paris or London or Rome. But uh, they had their imaginary Paris, London and Rome. And when I travel now, because of my books, 
and I always call them and say, Mom, I'm here in Paris on Champs-Élysées, no? <laughs> and, uh, and they say, okay, so it must be great and this and this. I say, well, okay, it's not bad. But... <laughs> and I realized that they have, yeah, their Paris, Rome and London still stay more beautiful than mine. They still make this, this miracle of invention. They still keep this picture because during the communist time we were of course the world was denied but we we tried we tried to find a way to read about this world to watch the movies to invent them do you know what which was more prestigious uh job uh in the time of socialism you would never guess uh it was to be a international truck driver international uh, truck driver because you can travel abroad abroad for us was like a different country like a separate country uh, where you can buy a long uh, chew gums like cigarettes or you can buy all these everyday goods like whiskey chocolates and so on and so on and after that to keep the empty packages of this they also were values it was very you can it, it could be funny, but also it could be, if you analyze this, it could be very traumatic in a way. Uh, anyway, so this uh, international truck driver, they were allowed to travel abroad and they brought to us back some uh, some records, some albums, some uh, video types, some, yeah, audio, audio types. And, and this was important, yeah. Can I flip it, actually? Angela, can I ask you about your experience of going from west to east? Yeah. Well, can I just add in why, why of all the countries in all the world did you choose Bulgaria? <laughs> because of the music. Actually, Bulgarian music, if you, if you don't know, it's the best music in the world. Though I, I'm clearly biased, but it really is completely unique and unbelievable. They have a very interesting um, folk singing tradition, women's folk singing tradition. And... Um, I was thinking when, when Giorgio was talking about the, the history, basically, you know, Bulgaria was very rural up until the 1940s. And so they kept their folk tradition quite alive compared to Western Europe. And then when the communists came in, they made everybody move into cities to work in factories, but they, they saved the music in the sense that they put it on stage and they made it in these state ensembles. And they made this kind of art music, like Western, they put like Western five, six, seven part harmonies to this folk music. And it actually, to me, is one of the most beautiful musics in the world. Um, this really interesting combination of Bulgaria's folk tradition and like Western kind of, you know, avant-garde art music. And so I came to study the music. I came to study to, to, to study singing. And you can't sing if you don't know the words, right? So I had to learn Bulgarian as well. So how did you come across the music? So we... <laughs> In a way, we actually we imported uh, Western music in Bulgaria illegally to these truck drivers or so, but exported our Bulgarian exactly, music. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, I was an undergrad at Yale in the early 1990s, and um, I was studying Russian, actually Russian literature, Russian language. But I always had been a singer, and they had the Yale Slavic Chorus, and I was like, oh, perfect! It's like you know Russian, but music. And I went and I heard that they played some Bulgarian music, and I was like, what? is that I want my voice to sound like that and so I eventually sort of nobody taught Bulgarian at, at Yale even then but I sort of gradually did, I mean I, I like Russian literature to this day but you know I, I sort of refocused on on the Balkans and on southern Slavic and then um, got a grant after I graduated to come here and, and study music 
I, I think I sort of interrupted Joe's main question there, which was your experience of, of the oh, East. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, and then I first came to Bulgaria in 1995, so it was after the fall of communism, but Bulgaria had a really difficult transition. It wasn't like Prague where, you know, there was lustration or like Romania where they, you know, killed Ceausescu. Here it was an internal coup where basically the Bulgarian Communist Party like deposed the dictator and the mafia, basically the old secret service became the mafia. And so there was, there wasn't a sense of a big break with the past. It was just sort of like a, a re-wallpapering of the past, but a lot of the people who had been in power remained in power. And a lot of the sort of everyday people were suffering greatly. There was a number of economic crises. Many people emigrated. It was a really hard time. And so, you know, the 1990s in Bulgaria, you know, there was euphoria about the freedom, but there was also a lot of frustration. Like, you know, we're supposed to be free now. We're supposed to be Western capitalists and, and we're all poor. We can't afford to do anything. You know, it was it was a really interesting time to be here. It was so everything was so gray. I mean, I remember as a musician, I would want to make recordings and I had to bring like a suitcase full of like double A batteries because you couldn't even get something as simple as like double A batteries. I mean, that's not the case now, but um, it was a really tough time. I think it was a very um, difficult time for Bulgaria and, and a time when a lot of people felt very disillusioned by the West and by capitalism because of the way the transition um kind of just left the same people in power and the people that have been wealthy before were now even that much more wealthy. So it, it was an interesting time to be here for sure. Has it settled down since? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, Bulgarians like to complain and they're like, oh, it's there. But I mean, think there's no comparison. It's so much, the, the standard of living has gotten so much better. It's a part of the European Union. It's a member of NATO, but that said, we're still facing a lot of problems with corruption, um, a lot of problems with rule of law, um, a lot of there. I, I I understand when Bulgarians continue to be frustrated and to voice this sort of disillusionment because it was a very difficult transition. But that said, it's you know there's no comparing to you know 25 years ago. Uh, Goki, I've got uh, one question for you. We've concentrated more on the sort of political uh, side of, of of memory in the book, but it it does start as a solution to the growing problem of Alzheimer's. And throughout the book, you remind us how massive and growing a problem this is. Uh, and at one point, you, you worry that, or the narrator worries, that at some point, governments are going to think that, why are we spending all this money on these useless people? Um, and uh, I mean, what, 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 what can be done? What should be done? I hope people will not ask this question uh, why we should uh, spend money about these people. Because, you know, uh, one of the first things in the 30s when Hitler came in power was to to start this company, campaign. Campaign, like eugenics. Campaign, yeah, yeah, like yeah. To, to kill the people who are disabled or especially the people who have some mental problems, who get kind of dementia. So this is a very dangerous, uh, very, very important question and could be very dangerous. So I, now it, it became a real problem, I think, because uh, because the society get older and older, people are living more and more. So it's normal to have after 80s to have these problems with uh, dementia and Alzheimer. Actually, now we have uh, more than 50 million people who are suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. And every three seconds, we have new and new patients 
who are suffering um, dementia and Alzheimer. So it's a, it's a, it will be a big problem in the close future. Also for the families, it's not a problem about the patient only. It's a problem about the families, the people who should take care. Uh, the problem is real, and that's why uh, part of the novel is dedicated is dedicated on this uh, because losing your memory, you're losing your identity, actually. Uh, I'd love to know how winning the International Booker Prize has, has changed your life this year. No, I mean, it's been amazing. I, I still feel like when I wake up and it'll all have been a dream, but um, no, it's been phenomenal. Just the, the level of recognition, I think, you know, as translators, we're sort of, it, traditionally, we've been invisible. It's only been in the last maybe five years that it's become common for translators' names to show up on the cover. So it's just such an incredible honor to, to get this level of recognition. And it's really it's really lovely here in Sofia this morning, an elderly lady on the metro said, are you the famous translator? And I thought, is that not an oxymoron? <laughs> it was so nice. And she said, thank you. My family and I are big fans of your work. So, I mean, it really has been lovely, I think. You know, most of the time, if you're a good translator, nobody should know you're even there, right? They should be reading the book and feeling like they're, you know, one-on-one -on -one talking to Georgi. And so it's been really nice to have that that recognition. So. Yeah, that, that also, uh, the, the, the best thing is that some ordinary people who are far away from literature, they, they feel happy because of this award. They, they are encouraged. They also uh, a guard of a parking stop me and say me, you know, we also read books. We're working something else, but we're reading books. And this was very, uh, also this, uh, I think I feel this, this award is encouraging for the young writers and translators. Now they know, and for me, this is very important that if you write on a small language, you have chance and you should tell stories about the big things, about the big issues. You don't need to be exotized, uh, to, to be put in a, some, exactly. what to say, box, like, okay, you are from Bulgaria. What we are waiting from you to tell stories about the Ottoman Empire or the fighting or something like this or uh, some exotic things. No, you have right and you should use this right to tell whatever you want, to tell about everything because we, we have what to tell. And this is very important, uh, what to say, what happened after the award. This has been my favourite interview. I, I've really loved listening to you both. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Take care. Have Goodbye. a lovely day. That's it for this week and indeed for this year, as we now take a Christmas break for two weeks. But there is a wealth of Booker Prize content you can still mine at thebookerprizes.com, including more on Time Shelter, this year's International Booker Prize winner. Uh, also, if you find yourself missing the Booker Prize podcast over the festive period, which I imagine you will, um, there are 27 previous episodes. So if you unaccountably missed one or two of those, then uh, why not listen to them too? Do you have any particular recommendations, James? Well, I must say, the one that I was most reluctant about, and let's be honest, Joe, you made me do, uh, was Book of Love Island, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, <laughs> of course you did. You should listen to me more often, James. <laughs> uh, what about you? What, what, any favourites of yours? Uh, sentimentally, I think the first episode, also because I think, um, you know, in all honesty, it was less uh, kind of 
put together than we are now. But I think the great thing about that one is that you can hear us both thinking about the books in real time and also about each other in a yeah, way. Yeah, no, we sort of get to know each other. I like that. We, we brought along our favourite um, book of books and uh, I went for Butcher Boy by Patrick McCabe and Jim. Uh, I did um, No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood. Um, but I am also less kind of sentimentally and more in terms of it's just a really good listen. Um, a huge fan of our two episode special on this year's shortlist uh, because I think I just think we covered those books really well, James. Yes, so do I. And, and, and sort of proved our independence as well, I think. Yes. I think is the euphemistic way of saying we slagged off a couple of them. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Yes, uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes. We'll be back on Thursday, the 4th of January with a special preview of the big books to look out for in 2024. So until then, it's a very, very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year from both of us. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy's Super Yacht production for The Booker Prizes. Mm-hmm.